I just can't help it. There's something inside of me. The way he behaves and speaks to me, I just find it so infuriating. Almost every time I interact with him, I feel the heat rise up within me. It's a minor miracle if I can avoid muttering under my breath about him, let alone control the thoughts running through my head. I just can't help it. There's something inside of me. When I see their car, their big house, when I see their holiday pictures from their latest trip, I think, I wish I had a BMW. I wish I had a bigger place. Maybe we could renovate the kitchen. I wish we could go on another holiday. You know, if only I had some of those things, then I'd be content. I just can't help it. There's something inside of me. It happens every time I take up my phone or my computer. I feel this urge, this pull to look at things that I know God doesn't approve of. But right now, I just don't have the strength to resist. Perhaps these are some of the stories of our battles against sin. The, the battle is real. It's a battle that we all face, every single one of us, every single day. It's the battle of, of life and death. Sin leads to death. Your struggle might be anger and frustration at a member of your family or a co-worker. It might be coveting the possessions of the people you see around you. It might be lustful desires, tempting you to look at things that you ought not to look at. Perhaps it's something else entirely. But it's true for all of us. What we read in, what we read in Genesis chapter 4, God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. As we've heard before in our Romans series, sin, it's like a deadly virus. A fatal disease born in every single human. Only in Christ do we have the cure. But meanwhile, our mortal bodies continue to struggle with sin until the new creation when it will be finally dealt with. So today in Romans 7, Paul gives us a window into the battle against sin. Deadlier than any virus, 100% fatality rate if left untreated. So the question today is, how can we defeat sin? Who or what will rescue us from it? And we'll see this text answer it with three points that you'll find in your outline if you'd like to follow along. Now before we get into it, just something to note about this passage is that it's quite widely debated about who Paul is speaking about here. There are various perspectives amongst different evangelicals because it's not an easy passage. You, you might have already noticed a couple of differences from the chapters before, chapters after. In chapter 7 here, Paul speaks a lot more in the first person. And, and in fact, if you look at how many times it appears, sin appears a lot more, even, even more than God and Christ in this passage. I'll seek to address some of these questions that might rise up as we go along, but if you still have questions afterwards, feel free to talk to, talk to someone over morning tea, uh, come and ask me, or, or even in home groups this week, it might be a good, good chance to wrestle with it together. So firstly, how can we defeat sin? Firstly, not through the law. Throughout Romans so far, we've heard quite a few times that sin and the law have this strange relationship. 
They, they don't really belong together. They're not things that should go together, like, like rabbits and eggs. But they appear together to get again and again, you know, Easter bunnies and chocolate eggs. Well, in the early chapters of Romans, we, we read that the law reveals sin. It, it makes it apparent. Verse, chapter 3, verse 20 says, through the law we become conscious of sin. We become aware of it. But in these last couple of chapters, the law seems to kind of take a step up, it, almost as a vehicle for sin, an instrument of sin. But in, in chapter 5, verse 20, it says, the law was brought in so that trespass might increase. Or chapter 7, verse 5 says, the law aroused sinful passions. Well, we and the Romans could understandably start thinking or questioning, then is the law evil? Is the law sinful? And this is the question that Paul answers to kick off this passage. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Rather, what we see is that the law itself is good, but sin uses it as a vehicle to produce disobedience and death. The law brings knowledge of sin. Have a look at verse 7. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was if it had not been for the law. Just like we heard before. But but then how does sin use the law to produce these things? Well, have a look at verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. And this same language comes up again in in verse 11. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. And you might be able to imagine ways that laws or commandments can be temptations for our sinful hearts. Think about the way we talk about forbidden fruit. Or you might have heard a parent say to a child or even said to your child, don't touch the oven, it's hot. And then what do they want to do? Straight away, they want to touch the oven. There's something alluring about what has been prohibited. It's also possible that Paul could be alluding back to Eve in the Garden of Eden, how Satan seized the opportunity to tempt her, drawing her attention to the forbidden tree tempting her into sin. The law can draw attention to what's forbidden and our sinful hearts perhaps awaken to sinful action which leads to death. But it leads to death. Have a look at verse 8b to verse 9. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, But when the commandment came, sin sin sprang to life and I died. Now this is one of the verses where it seems more likely that perhaps Paul is not talking about his own personal experience. Because there wasn't really a time when Paul was alive apart from the law. He, He was a Jew growing up. Saul of Tarsus grew up with the instruction of the Old Testament law. So how could he have been the one he's describing? Well, it seems that one option is that Paul could be looking at the law with a larger perspective, thinking of salvation history, not just for himself or an individual Jew, but thinking about Israel and them receiving the law of Moses at Mount Sinai. 
We've heard earlier in Romans that although there was sin before that, it wasn't counted until the law was given. And so in that sense, sin came to life when the law was given. It was counted and revealed and made manifest in Israel's history. But does all this, all this make the law sinful? No. A commandment that prohibits and reveals sin is not sinful. It's, but verse 12, it's holy, good, and righteous. Telling a child not to touch a hot oven, it's a good and righteous thing. That's a good rule. The source of the problem is human sin, not in the law itself. Verse 13 summarizes this first section then, that sin produced death through the good law so that sin might be recognized for what it is as sin. Sin is the main actor here. Unlike previous chapters in Romans, sin seems alive, active, seizing opportunities to produce death. It's a fierce enemy that we ought to take seriously. And so how do we defeat it? Well, not through the law. The law is good, but it doesn't enable us to defeat sin. But thinking of this Israel history, what does that have to do with us? Well, although we're a couple of steps removed, their example reminds us that rules and check boxes, lists of what to do, lists of what not to do, these things, they don't have the spiritual power to change our hearts. They might be able to curb behaviors, channel us into slightly better directions, but on their own, they lack the power to bring true spiritual growth. I've known Christian brothers who have struggled with pornography, and there are various methods of accountability and, and, and tools that are commonly used to help, things like computer software or making rules for themselves, not being alone with screens at night, but time and time again, rules get broken, circumnavigated, and ultimately it comes down to God bringing them to confession and repentance and eventually turning them away from their sin. The law, the law won't do it. Rules can't fix it. How can we defeat sin? Firstly, not through law. Now, secondly, we see, we'll see that an individual's earnest desire to obey the law, even that still isn't enough. In this next section, let's try to step into the shoes of the person Paul is describing, and then we might think about the question of who it might be. On one hand, have a look at verse 18. He actually has the desire to do what is good. And even stronger in verse 22, his inner being delights in God's law. And then at the end in verse 25, with his mind, he serves God. Unlike unbelievers who are commonly described as a mind opposed to God. So compared with other areas of Paul's writings, it sounds perhaps like a Christian, one who seeks God. But on the other hand, there's this strong sense of defeat and and powerlessness it could be describing the Christian's struggle against temptation, but, but there's almost a sense of dominion and, and rule over this person. Have a look at verse, I'll, I'll list a few phrases from our passage tonight. Verse 14, I am unspiritual, that is fleshly, sold as a slave under sin. 
Or verse 18, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I can't do it. Verse 17 or 20 has this phrase, no longer I who do it, but the sin living in me, sin dwelling in the person. Verse 23, another law is at work in me, making me a prisoner to the law of sin. Do you hear there's a sense of defeat and enslavement here? This person is unable to please God because they are enslaved or imprisoned by sin. And this is actually the way surrounding chapters of Romans describes the unbeliever. Unable to please God because sin is, has enslaved them. It's, it's like sin has taken charge of the house, not just knocking on the door, inviting you to come and play, but they've locked you in the basement and they're entering the front door in your house. So for these reasons, this contrast between this passage and the passages either side, I lean towards this being a pre-Christian Jew, perhaps, who seeks to, seeks to obey God's law but doesn't, doesn't have the spiritual power to do so. Perhaps like a sailboat with a perfectly functioning rudder. It can steer the boat wherever it wants to go, but it hasn't got a sail. No sail, no wind, no power to do what it's supposed to do. Listen for a few verses from chapter 6 for this contrast I've been talking about. Six chapter, chapter 6 verse 14 says, Sin shall no longer be your master. 6.17 says, You used to be slaves to sin. Or 6 verse 22, You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. Now if we, if we take chapter 7 to be a pre-Christian, it actually spurs us on in the struggle against sin. It adds an accent to those things of chapter 6, knowing that that is not our situation. We are not slaves under sin. We, we are not under its dominion. When we desire to do good, God's, God's spirit, God's power enables us to carry it out. Because I don't think we should be content with the idea that we might seek to do good, but our hands are tied. We can't do it. I don't think that's the freedom that Christ offers us. When those angry words are almost about to fly out of our mouths, or when we catch ourselves thinking about our next purchase, our next holiday, more than the fellowship of our Christian brothers and their spiritual health, or when we find our eyes lingering on things that they ought not to linger on, we can say, I have been set free from sin. God has given me his spirit, his power to desire good and to carry it out. This is not to say that we won't fail. At times we will fail to live up to the calling we've received. But we're no longer under the power of sin as our master. Praise God. In the words of the hymn, and can it be, my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. How can we defeat sin? Not through the law, not through our own personal earnest desire, but through Christ and his power in us. This brings us to our last point. The, the intense soul struggle we've been listening to. You know, I, 
I do what I don't want to do. I, I don't do what I want to do. There's this sin living in me. It builds to a climax in verse 24. Have a look. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Whichever view we take on the identity of the I, the person in this passage, both Christian or both pre-Christian or Christian are looking forward to Christ's rescue from the present state. Either the pre-Christian looking forward to the freedom Christ offers from the bondage of sin, a true wretch looking for salvation and release. Or the Christian waiting for the redemption of our mortal bodies to be free from this struggle that we go through, free from the frustration of living in a body tarnished daily by sin, looking to his help in our present struggle. You know, both are in a sense of great need of Christ's help and rescue. And God, through Christ, has delivered as Joe said in the kids' talk, he's, he's, he's won the battle. He's given us freedom and power for the present battle and assurance that one day it'll be perfectly eradicated. Sin will be eradicated. So thanks be to God for his deliverance. Uh, for much of the last year, I've often thought that sleeplessness and juggling family were the biggest hindrances in my fruitfulness as a Christian. And many times I've thought, oh, if only I was getting more sleep, if only our kids were a bit older, I'd be able to be so much help, more helpful for the kingdom. I'd be more godly. But the reality has hit me through Romans that the number one hindrance in my fruitfulness is my own sin. This is the biggest battle we face. So what a beautiful and soul-relieving Reality that we are no longer in that bondage to sin. Like soldiers in the trenches at the war, hearing the message that the victory has been won, perhaps they're still on the front line for some time, but they know the battle is won. To the one who's trapped in sin with failure after failure, who feels trapped in sin, there is sweet relief in the reality that they are not under the bondage of sin. God's provided a saviour. What a balm to the soul of the, the wretched sinner, the wretched man that I am. Christ's deliverance comforts us. He's freed us from sin's power, but it does still linger, doesn't it? And since it still lingers, God is doing his work of grace in us. For me, recently, through frank conversations with people that are close to me, through, through prayer for God's Holy Spirit, for prayer for a tender heart, God's been revealing sin to me and leading me to repentance. And obviously, this is an area I and we all ought to always grow in. So, so how about you? Are there people who can have frank conversations with you about your shortfalls? Will you pray for God to make your heart tender, to give you, give you his Holy Spirit that might be grieved as he is grieved about our sin? 
We ought to take this battle against seriously, battle against sin seriously, with our hopes set on Christ and his deliverance and his power. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord.